Welcome to the 304th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome, and thank you for listening. Today's episode, tribute to our own very own dietitian, Addie Delaney Minerich. Happy birthday, Addie. Going to be 29 years young on May 21st. Addie was destined to be a dietitian and a great cook. For one, she was born on her grandmother's birthday, Addie Delaney, who was a fabulous Irish cook. So, you know, she was destined for greatness. Um, but, you know, when people look at Addie, sometimes they think, you know, she is just kind of going on. You know, it's all easy for her. She's muscular and thin, a good athlete, good looking, and, you know, must not have any trials or tribulations. And uh, life is just easy. And, you know, this episode is about easy is just not what we're after. And um, Addie's not after easy by a long shot. You kind of laugh in the house. Uh, it was my idea for Addie to be an Olympic swimmer. So I started her out in swimming. And, you know, at five years of age, jumping into a cold pool, just, she just didn't seem to, to really understand, uh, you know, the Olympic spirit of things. And eventually basketball became her game. But she wasn't the tallest kid, so she wasn't the, the center, and she wasn't the quickest kid, so she wasn't the guard, and she was the coach's kid uh, a lot of the time, so the expectations were high. And, you know, she, hard work just became part of her, her, of her MO. And, you know, one thing led to another. Uh, she started to run to prepare for high school basketball and joined the track team. And, you know, again, uh, not really going to take the long way out. Again, she was not the... Um, you know, the jumper of any sort, but next thing I knew, she, she signed up for hurdles. And so she was running cross country in, in, this, in uh, the fall and doing hurdles in the, in the springtime and playing basketball in between and, and did quite well. And then she went off to college and she was uh, trying to be a vegan and trying to figure out her path uh, as far as what she wanted to do. She knew uh, from pod, other podcasts, you've heard her say she wanted to help people. She was always around people in the medical field, but just couldn't quite figure out um, which path she wanted to go. And as fate would have it, she walked on to the West Virginia University rowing team, um, never having sat in a boat her life. She um, went out for the team mainly to, you know, meet some friends when she tried to when she transferred to West Virginia University to uh, go to physical therapy school. But ultimately, she met her first mentor, uh, who was a registered dietitian, uh, sports dietitian, helping the rowing team, and. You know, as things would, would go, she, again, hard work, getting up at um, you know, the wee hours of the morning after being raised as a Florida kid to go out on an icy river and row, uh, and then meeting this dietitian. Life kind of fell into place for her, and she decided to become a registered dietitian. And I couldn't be more proud that she is working with me in our practice uh, of a wellness practice to help people become plant-based. And you know, she is helping a tremendous amount of people, and I am thankful for that. And so, Addie, happy birthday. I don't know what Addie has planned on May 21st, but I'm sure it's some challenge that uh, will have anybody that wants to do it along with her um, make them sweat and and moan and be a little bit sore. 29 of something uh, for sure. Her and her husband always come up with uh, some regimen to assess their level of fitness on their birthday. Matter of fact, they didn't even get engaged easy. Addie ran a marathon before she, uh, as Nathan waited for her to get engaged. So she's been running and uh, does part of our wellness program as well. Um, we have wellness challenges every month for our members to try to keep people as active as we possibly can. Uh, I believe Addie has signed up for the Houston Half Marathon um, next fall. Caleb turns one, so she's back on the running scene, and she's uh, she can be seen out in pictures on Instagram running with her Bob Stroller with Caleb in tow and uh, her 80-pound German Shepherd also uh, as, as protection along with him. So I think she's going to be pretty good in that half marathon 
since she's been pushing a carriage with uh, Caleb in it and having Haas on one side, kind of running with one arm. But nutrition was not always her forte either. And, you know, before she went to dietetic school and when she first started rowing, just like any other athlete, she thought that she could eat everything that she wanted and, uh, you know, would have the body composition of, uh, of an athlete. And it, it just wasn't so. And I think a lot of times we think that when we're doing endurance events especially, uh, the sky's the limit for our intake. Our, our appetite increases and uh, we end up eating more. And a lot of people end up gaining weight when they're tra training for a marathon. Um, and very few people actually lose weight training for a marathon. And if they do lose some weight, Typically, after people finish a marathon, then they, you know, go through that rest period and they put on the pounds. And a lot of people fear that if they get injured, they're going to put on the pounds because they're used to having, a, you know, a big appetite while they're training. And they can get away with a little bit more, but not always. And as we talked about with Jeff Galloway, who is a longtime excellent marathon runner who, uh, you know, has coined the Galloway run-walk-run method, he suffered from coronary artery disease um, despite his running career. But there's also, I also came across another very distinguished runner this week uh, by the name of David Horton, who was a very famous ultra runner uh, that holds numerous records for 100-mile events. And he actually had a seven-way bypass um, the, the next week after he ran a 100K trail race. Now, the first thing that popped into my mind when I, I saw that, you know, looking back, this was several years ago when he had that bypass, but if he could run 100K and then he still needed a bypass uh, afterwards, an elective bypass, it tells me that this could have been handled a much different way, perhaps. And, you know, we talk about um, nutrition being the, you know, the fourth discipline of triathlon or certainly the second or third discipline of marathoning. And I think people often forget that it is a very important part of athletic training and longevity in the sport. You see football players, you know, um, eating their Big Macs and advertising for Coca-Cola and, you know, eating all kinds of McDonald's during the Olympics and all these things. But we don't see these people, you know, 10, 15 years after they've, they've quit their athletics. And I think you can look at football and look at Tom Brady versus maybe Mahomes, who is, um, you know, eating his way through his athletic career versus uh, Tom Brady being much more diligent about his nutrition, you know, um, and the longevity that will play out over time there. So, you know... But when it comes to the weekend warrior and um, adult athletes or people that have, you know, started to do endurance events after a break um, or to try to get healthy, I think we have to remember that, you know, again, nutrition is a, is a huge role. And, you know, it's, it's a part that may be a little bit harder and, and we, we kind of tend to ignore the hard parts a little bit. I like to look at it as an analogy of taking care of the equipment. You know, baseball players oil their glove. Golfers want the grooves cleaned in their clubs and the grips are just right. Uh, they use new golf balls instead of one that have cuts or the dimples that are kind of flattened out or they don't. the ball doesn't bounce just right. Tennis players are very particular about their strings and the balls that they use. Bowling balls can't have any scratches if you're in the final, you know, um, aspect of things. Runners want to run with new shoes, highest technology. Ath uh, bicyclists or cyclists want the lightest pedals, the lightest bike. Um, and, you know, it's always funny in a triathlon, you see these really light bikes, bikes uh, that are very expensive, carbon bikes with uh, titanium pedals. And then they put, you know, 10 pounds of Gatorade on, on them. And the person that gets on them is, you know, 20 pounds overweight. And they could go a lot faster if they just uh, made themselves more aerodynamic and, and didn't worry quite as much uh, on the bike. 
But, you know, we, we kind of go for the easy way. If we can, you know, wax our way around faster skis or, um, you know, put a swimsuit on that makes us a little slicker or, you know, makes us uh, a little trimmer, uh, then we, we tend to do it instead of going for the, uh, a little bit more effort on, on our own part. I think we look at good athletes and thin people and say that, you know, it's always been that way and, and it comes easy for them. But, you know, there's a lot of hard work uh, behind a good athlete uh, and, a, and a fit individual and the stuff that people don't see that, that, you know, when they talk about when nobody's looking, what people do is what really counts. And, you know, I, I'm quite proud of Addie as being one of those people that uh, has always worked hard when, when nobody's looking to try to keep fit and push her athletic ability as well as her academic ability and her research into dietetics as, as much as she can without taking the easy way around. Um, so, you know, again, I'm just going to encourage uh, people to, you know, don't worry about the hacks or trying to do the easy way around or the easy stuff and forget the hard work because it's really the hard work that, you know, ends up paying off all the time. And I don't think anybody really gets away with much uh, in the way of hacks. I, I do believe that uh, people are really working hard behind the curtains and you just don't see it. So don't feel bad that you have to work hard to lose weight or work hard to get in shape for your marathon or your triathlon or work hard to try to get your speed up a little bit or your flexibility up a little bit, because I believe that everybody actually is doing that. We just don't always see it. And I think sometimes it's a source of frustration uh, for people trying to lose weight because they, they feel as though that they're giving up so much more than other people, but, but they really don't realize um, the struggle that, that everybody has and, um, you know, the way that pe what people had to do to learn to eat what they, what they really are eating. There was a study done out of the University of Birmingham and King's College in London looking at um, aging. And they looked at 1,253 subjects, and they looked at the ability for people, um, males to ride 60 miles or women to ride um, 60 kilometers. And so the males, which, which is 100 kilometers in less than six and a half hours, and women uh, 60 kilometers in less than five and a half hours, and they divided the people up into age groups, 57 to 80, 55 and younger, uh, and they looked at a control group. And the people that could cycle in for that duration in that time period um, did not show a loss of muscle mass uh, over time. Their strength did not uh, decrease. Um, they had a normal body fat, cholesterol, didn't, didn't rise compared to the control group uh, in men. The testosterone levels remained in the normal uh, range. In addition, their immune system did not show evidence of aging. When you looked at T cells and natural killer cells, um, there's a natural aging process that as we get older, we lose uh, T cell function and people think it's just a matter of living. But the reality of it is it's a matter of how you live, not just living. So, you know, exercise is, is really important and not only exercise, but the, the, um, what you put into the exercise as far as vigorous exercise or just moderate, modest exercise. So, you know, like I've said before on this podcast, there's, you know, studies have shown that there's no level of fitness where you're, uh, where the benefits start to fall off. And the more people can exert themselves, the more vigorous people can exercise at least part of the time, the better off that they become. And so, you know, the conclusion of the study was a lifetime of exercise really slows down the aging process. And this was published in, in 2018. And, you know, it goes back to, we, we talk about in plant-based nutrition, you know, Hippocrates says, let medicine or let food be thy medicine. But uh, he also said uh, something about exercise and that exercise is man's best friend. So, 
you know, the guy was right on a, on a, on a several different different forms. And I think it's, it's really important to, um, you know, again, not only keep the exercise up, but keep pushing the limits a little bit. Um, I met with one of our members that's training for his first marathon, and he's moving right along uh, doing a race walk program. Uh, and you know, his mileage has increased, and we're seeing uh, not only a decrease in his heart rate as he trains, but we're also seeing an improvement in his heart rate variability at night. So, it, you know, we're, we're tracking uh, a lot of different markers in people, um, you know, trying to get them uh, more physically fit, but improving their cardiac engine as well as their, their physical capabilities. There was another um, interesting article that was just published in May of uh, the first part of this uh, first part of this month, um, and looking at peripheral vascular disease and mortality and um, revascularization procedures. It's estimated that eight and a half million people in the United States have some form of um, peripheral vascular disease. And the risk factors for peripheral vascular disease are the same as coronary artery disease. And I guess to define peripheral vascular disease, it's uh, blood vessels affected with um, atherosclerosis, causing either narrowing or, narrowing or angina, uh, or claudication-type symptoms in the lower leg um, can also be considered aneurysm in the abdomen or narrowing in the abdominal aorta. Narrowing in blood vessels that go to the, to the um, gut as well can, can occur. People get belly pain when they try to eat, but the, the typical one with peripheral uh, arterial disease in the lower extremities is when people walk, they get cramping in their hips cramping in their calves, and when they stop, it goes away. And it's, it's the equivalent of angina in coronary artery disease. So basically, when they're trying to exert themselves, their muscles aren't getting enough blood flow. The blood vessels narrow normally as you go further down the leg, but in, and so the blockages tend to occur more so in smaller blood vessels. So typically, the arteries in the pelvis and then the upper leg um, are the ones that are subject to intervention. They're easier to put stents in, but more recently... Um, physicians are starting to put stents in the legs and the arteries below the knee. So this study looked at uh, those people. The thing that was striking to me was the number. Um, the Medicare claims percentage went up 31% uh, between 2011 and 2017. So it's 2011 to 2017. There were 227,091 to 200 and 98,127 procedures. This is a very lucrative procedure for physicians, especially in private offices. And, um, you know, the question is whether people actually get improvement in life quality, meaning the absence of pain when they walk, loss of limbs, so the chances of losing a limb because of decreased blood flow, or prolongation of life. So a study was published, again, in the Journal of American Medical Association this month, this year, looking at 168,533 patients who underwent a procedure uh, placing either a drug-looting stent, a stent that had a, med uh, a medicine coating on it versus a bare metal stent. And what they found was there was a 53.8 to 55% risk of mortality over the next five years. And this was in a, you know, a patient population, mainly uh, average age, we're, we're in the 70s. And, uh, you know, again, this rate also includes a uh, five-year mortality rate, uh, all-cause deaths, cancer, and infection. So basically, the takeaway is that peripheral artery disease is a significant risk factor for increased mortality. And the best way to change that risk factor is lifestyle. Uh, the stent therapy makes no difference in ultimate 
um, quality of life and longevity. And the best treatment that we have is to move. Um, we have people walk until they get discomfort in their legs, stop, rest, move again. And they need to do that on a regular basis. And the reason for that is when you're standing and you're walking, as opposed to riding a bike or swimming, gravity is helping you get blood flow to your lower extremities. The contraction of your muscles help to contract and get the unoxygenated, deoxygenated blood back up to your heart. You develop more muscle strength, again, to help move the blood, and you also open up little collateral arteries. You also help drain the lymphatic system. So you're draining toxins out of your lower extremities so that there's much less risk of infection. The biggest thing that happens to people with peripheral vascular disease is they get an ulcer on their foot or their ankle or a bug bite or an ingrown toenail, and it doesn't heal. There's, and it becomes infected, and that infection tracks up the leg because they can't clear the infection because they have decreased blood flow. The other thing we want to do is, you guessed it, plant-based uh, nutrition to increase nitric oxide production because just like increasing nitric oxide production helps dilate blood vessels in the heart, it also helps dilate blood vessels everywhere, including your lower extremities, and ultimately will help reverse that disease. So it's very important that people with peripheral vascular disease start increasing their nitric oxide vegetables. Again, people get confused with green and nitric oxide. We're talking green leafy vegetables, arugula, cabbage, bok choy, napa, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, beet, beet top, Swiss chard, collards, mustard greens, we are not talking green beans and green peppers. Time on your feet helps. When people get severe narrowing in those arteries, it even hurts to have their feet up lying in bed and they need to hang them off the side of the bed because, again, gravity helps feed blood flow to the lower legs. But again, you have to get the gravity down, but you have to get the blood flow back up. So that's why it's important to get up and walk as much as possible. So these people need to get, just like everybody else, as many steps per day as possible. Sometimes people get confused whether they have peripheral artery disease or peripheral neuropathy. And obviously they go hand in hand because diabetics are at risk for both. But guess what? The treatment is the same for both. So, yes, we can give people medications to numb the arteries, which, or I'm sorry, numb the nerves, which somewhat uh, relieve symptoms, but it doesn't change the overall prognosis. So, if somebody has peripheral neuropathy uh, from diabetes, the result of that is a decrease in blood flow to the little nerves uh, as they go distally as well. So, as our arteries, nerves, and veins travel more distally from our heart to our toes, everything gets smaller. Decreased blood flow affects the nerves just like it affects the skin and the muscle. People start to get neuropathy. If we start eating nitric oxide producing vegetables, then we dilate those little arteries and capillaries that feed those nerves. And guess what? Peripheral neuropathy also gets better. So it's a win-win situation if you have neuropathy or you have claudication. The problem is it's not easy. It's not easy because it hurts when you do it. And so people would rather sit down or take a pill so that the pain goes away. But again, no pain, no gain. You have to get up and move. So little bits at a time. 
you know, walk a few feet. I had a patient that would count his steps. And so every day he would get out and walk and he would count his steps. And he started out, you know, 200 was all he could get. Then it was 250, then 500, then 1,000. Then he quit counting. He started counting uh, distance. But, you know, counting steps till you get discomfort. Uh, I've had patients with diabetes that couldn't, you know, the thought of going 25 yards down their driveway was more than they could they could even imagine. It's like you have to do it. So even if you go out and you have to stop three or four times, you got to do it and go back. And every day it gets a little bit better. Mark it on a calendar. Track your progress. Motivate yourself. You have to play mind games with yourself. You have to play head games with yourself to get yourself a little bit further. And you can actually make it fun. I got to tell you that I am so uh, impressed. Again, I, I talked about uh, a, a member that is training for a marathon. He's going to race walk it. And the enthusiasm that he shows at, at 78 years young as far as tracking his ability to go further, um, his heart rate, his body battery stress, he, it's, it's a game. It's, it's exciting. It's uh, entertaining. Uh, it's challenging, and, and he wants to go faster. And, that, and so you don't have to be a race walker to do challenges. Peripheral vascular disease can be your race, your race to improved health by how far you get. So, it's, you know, um, we talked about yesterday, um, I had a member ask me one time, why do you lace up your shoes and start a marathon if you know you're going to lose? You're never going to come in first. You're never going to win. Um, you know, there's, you're two hours behind the lead winner. Why would you even do it? And it's like, it's not the winning of the entire race. That's not my job. My job is to be a physician, but the race itself is to challenge myself and try to improve myself and improve my time, my performance and troubleshoot, troubleshoot things that go wrong. I've done about every stupid thing you can do running a marathon or running a race. And so it's like, okay, how do I troubleshoot? How do I not do the same things over um, or do the same stupid things maybe a different way? But nevertheless, that is the challenge. So it's not the easy things that give us reward. It's overcoming the challenges that actually give us the reward. The, the next study that ties into this is a study looking at atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is an irregularity of the top chamber of the heart. It starts to quiver. Instead of one sinus beat starting the heartbeat, there are hundreds of beats that try to initiate a heartbeat. And the more successful it is at conduction, the higher the heart rate. And so people can get heart rates of 150 or 180, which is not good just sitting around or with minimal exertion. So we have to control the rate. Ultimately, we would like to eliminate that irregular uh, focus of heart rate initiation, get people back into rhythm. But sometimes we can't, and sometimes it recurs. The medications aren't all that good. Uh, the better the medication, the more side effects. We also know that the biggest risk is what happens because the top chamber is not squeezing rhythmically. It is more quivering, and so blood can kind of... Um, flow more like a milkshake than water in the top chamber of the heart and little blood clots can form. And if those little blood clots, clots launch, then that's the result of what we call a peripheral embolization or uh, the most common is a stroke. 
So the biggest risk factor for atrial fibrillation is a stroke. Um, over time, the, you know, the risk is in, in all comers has been quoted to be seven or eight times the normal population. But different people get atrial fibrillation at different times in their life with different risk factors. High blood pressure, as I've said before on this podcast, is the biggest risk factor for atrial fibrillation, but it can also be because of valvular heart disease uh, or vascular disease in general. Um, So we look at, um, and it can come at different ages. It can can hit people in their 30s, athletes, uh, with certain builds and certain uh, heart structures are at increased risk for atrial fibrillation over time, um, not all athletes, but so we see uh, atrial fibrillation in 30-year-olds and 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds, and 80-year-olds. And the question is, who should be on blood thinners to prevent the stroke? Are, are all people at the same risk for an increase in stroke? And so there's been a risk factor um, algorithm developed looking at Uh, who's more at risk for a stroke. And certainly people that have more risk factors, and these risk factors are in a history of heart failure or high blood pressure, certainly over 75 years of age, people with diabetes, people who have had a stroke, people that have vascular disease, all are increased risk of stroke. Unfortunately, some people present with a stroke, and so they didn't know they had this arrhythmia and the stroke is the first symptoms. Um, men typically cannot feel their heart rate as well as women. People with barrel chests sometimes don't feel their heartbeat. I cannot feel my heartbeat. Um, even when I'm running fast, I don't feel my heartbeat. I have to stop and would have to stop and take my pulse to realize that my heart is beating fast. But one of the things that would be abnormal would be um, a change in your breathing pattern. So if you were just sitting around and your heart rate increased, so would your breathing pattern most of the time. Or if you went to do something, walk across the room, all of a sudden you'd be more fatigued because your heart's pumping faster than it should be and you're not getting the blood flow to your tissues like you would if it were in more in sync with your body's demands. So sometimes people present with their shorter breath with exertion or they're lightheaded um, or dizzy. And then we notice that they're um, in this rhythm. But again, sometimes people don't and they present with a stroke and, and that's very unfortunate. If people have had stroke-like symptoms, you know, um, people don't want to take blood thinner. Um, and there's increased risk of bleeding. Um, the old, more old-fashioned blood thinner, Coumadin, Warfarin, people called it rat poisoning. You have to get a blood test. If your blood is too thin or too thick, it uh, doesn't work as well. It has to be in a certain range. We call it an international ratio between two and three to be in the best range so that you won't bleed or you won't clot. The newer blood thinners uh, that are out, you don't have to get the blood test, but... Um, you can't reverse them as easy either, that we're now coming out with new medications that can reverse them quicker, but the risk of bleeding is always what's in the back of people's minds. So if you hit your head, you have to tell somebody, you know, if you cut yourself, you have to put pressure on the wound. It's not so much cuts and bruises that are a problem other than they're aesthetically displeasing, 
it's the internal bleeding that we worry about. So if somebody has a bleeding diverticulum or a bleeding cancer in the bladder or the colon, then they can present with a lot of blood loss or, again, if they hit their head. So those are the risks. Um, certainly people that are active, that are riding bikes, if they fall and they hit their head, that's, you know, that's something that, you know, you really rather not to take blood thinner over. So people don't want to take blood thinner. And, and I'm, I perfectly understand that. But if you've had a stroke, the risk of that happening again is, you know, is fairly significant. So, you know, we, those people, they need to take, they need to take their blood thinner. Um, even if you've had an ablation done, the success rates are getting much higher, 80, 90%, but there's still a risk of it coming back. And if people cannot feel that irregular heartbeat, or if it happens at night, they could still be at risk for a stroke. So we have people take anticoagulation unless, again, they don't have any of these other risk factors. And so if you don't have any of these other risk factors, what's the risk of having a stroke? And so um, a recent study looked at people that didn't have heart failure, hypertension. They weren't over 75. They didn't have diabetes. They hadn't had a stroke or they hadn't had vascular disease documented. And the number of people were 16,351 people. And they looked over a one-year period. If you were 66 to 74, um, the risk of a stroke over a year was 1.1%. If you got to 74 years of age, that risk of stroke went to 1.7. If you were less than 66, it was 0.7. So as you age from 66 to 74, the risk of a stroke without any risk factors increases to greater than 1%. The other interesting thing from this study looked that death from any cause over that one-year period in that age group from 66 to 75 was 8.1%. Again, it tells us the risk from vascular disease is significant as we age. If you're walking around in your 60s, there's a good chance that you can have vascular disease. My point of all of this, if this study, the atrial fibrillation study and the peripheral artery disease study, is that as we age, our mortality risk increases. There are some really good things we can do to decrease the risk. In the instance of atrial fibrillation, obviously increasing our risk factors, the heart failure risk, hypertension, diabetes, vascular disease risk is very, very important. But even without those risk factors, just because we're aging, there is an increased risk every year, again, that approaches 8% in their age group of 66 to 75. If you look at COVID-19 deaths, it is much less than 8.1%. Vascular disease and vascular disease-associated complications is much riskier than SARS-CoV-2. And our entire focus, our entire lives are being put on hold 
and we're focusing only on SARS-CoV-2 and the potential risk that's much less than 8%. Even hospitalized patients have a less risk factor. And certainly, if people control the risk factors for vascular disease, the risk for death from COVID markedly decreases. The fact that people are putting their lives on hold, they're hiding in their houses, they don't go to the grocery store, they don't visit their family, they don't go out and do activities, is contributing more to their death from vascular disease than it is protecting them from the infectious disease that we call COVID-19. 8.1% of dying in one year if you're 66 to 75 from a vascular disease. Much less than COVID. So when I talk to people in my office who haven't been doing anything for the year, they haven't been going out and exercising. I have old people now that have fallen and broken their hips because they're staying inside, because their family members are so afraid of them to go out and do an exercise class or to go out and walk and to go out and visit. They're actually dying from complications of staying inside and hiding. People are gaining tremendous amounts of weight. They're becoming depressed. They're not going out and exercising. Their vascular risk is increasing. Their cholesterol is increasing. Their diabetes is worsening. The depression is increasing. There is no reason to hide from SARS, COVID, COVID-2, COVID-19. You need to address the risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Or it doesn't matter. And you need to live your life. You know, so getting out and exercising with a group of uh, friends, um, you know, live life. It's no riskier than just aging. And I think that's the perspective we need to take. And I also, you know, and um, children, they don't have any risk of mortality if they're healthy. So we need to feed our children well. You know, young people are not at risk. So to put people's lives on hold, to not visit your grandchildren, to not go out and socialize with your friends, to have fights with your family over whether they've had a vaccine or not, is completely irrelevant because the, dis, the death risk from cardiovascular disease is much greater than that of COVID-19. I wish I knew why this disease got people's attention so much more than cardiovascular disease because if you go in a hospital the cardio there's 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 coronary care units dedicated to the intensive care of people with vascular disease we have entire floors dedicated to people with cardiovascular disease every day of the year every day of the year and nobody's worried about all the numbers that we have with cardiovascular you know why because it makes money for the hospital. It is the number one moneymaker for the hospital. And it's not contagious. So, and we can do more procedures. We can do peripheral vascular procedures that make no difference in people's quality of life or longevity. We can put stents in people and do bypass surgeries that typically make people not live any longer or live any better. Actually, there are 
side effects from those procedures that decrease people's quality of life. Yet we don't do anything to change that. I had to fight tooth and nail to get plant-based nutrition option in a cafeteria, one of the hospitals in town. The other one I completely failed. I made fun of continuously for my nutrition choices and plant-based nutrition advocacy. Continuously. Yet the hospital wards are full of people with cardiovascular disease and nobody seems to be worried. Buildings on buildings. Look in your town of all the big buildings dealing with vascular disease and coronary artery disease, standalone heart catheterization labs, standalone stress testing labs. They're money makers. They're money makers. Yet we don't worry about the 8% risk in one year from vascular disease in the 60s to 70s. It's pretty scary when you think about it. Everybody assumes they're going to live because the, you know, the life expectancy is into the 80s. We all think we're going to get it or we're going to get to 90 because Grandma Susie lived to be 90. Not so. Not so. So do things that are a little bit harder. Work a little bit harder. Put your nose to the grindstone to reverse your cardiovascular disease. Nobody has it easy. No matter what they look like or how they appear, everybody struggles. But you know what? The struggle is good. The struggle is what, you know, make that struggle your game to reverse your vascular disease. And, you know, once again, I am very proud of our registered dietitian, Addie Minerich. She takes on the struggle head, head, for, head, uh, head first, and um, she's doing great with her nutrition, her athletics. She puts the bar high for her and her family. And we put the bar high for our members of our practice. So, you know, some of our members might say we're a little rough on them, but we hold that bar high because we know what they can achieve. And we're so proud of our members that do achieve that. And if you'd like to be part of our practice, go over to drdelaney.com and uh, give us a call. We'd love to talk to you about our practice and, and how you might join us. Doesn't matter where you live. We're also doing an event in June. Uh, it's on our website, drdelaney.com. Another webinar, um, Addie and I will be uh, talking about summertime barbecue picnic recipes, how you can do them healthy, how you can travel and eat healthy. So we're going to be preparing uh, another six recipes and discussing the nutrition behind them. So go over to drdelaney.com to buy your tickets. That's going to occur on um, June 16th at 5.30 to 8. Uh, again, we'll do it via Zoom. Um, the Zoom conference will be up for another week. We'll do Q&As for a week. And um, love to have you join us. I think that'll be a, a lot of fun. Again, if you like coffee, go over to the website. You can, uh, or we'll link it on the show notes to get Grounds and Hounds discount and help a pet in need. And until then, happy birthday, Addie. And... Many more next week uh, after that will be uh, my grandson Caleb's first birthday. So May is a very big month in the uh, Delaney Minerage household. And we'll be doing a lot of plant-based healthy foods for our birthday parties. So I hope you enjoy your spring and summer. And I'll look forward to talking to you, talking to you next week. Thanks. Enjoy. <laughs>